and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered. And at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Dr. Aviva Rom, who is a combined Yale-trained MD and a midwife who specializes in all things women's health. Yes, we're going there. We're going to be talking about women's health again, because I do think it's a subject that we simply cannot talk about enough. I came across Aviva's Instagram feed actually a while ago, and I was really taken by how rich a resource it is for any woman who wants to understand how she feels better, whether it's hormones, menstrual cycle, pregnancy, giving birth, postpartum. She covers the whole breadth of everything that you can consider to do with women's health. So I reached out and I asked if she would like to have a conversation on the show. And based on what I'd seen her share on social, her books and other interviews I found, I was keen to quiz her about hormones generally, what feeling normal in inverted commas is like for a woman or should be like for a woman, whether you can balance your hormones or not, because that's something that I hear talked about so much. And about you, have you ever even used the word balancing? You used the words, I should say, balancing my hormones or balance my hormones, thinking that that's something that you should be doing. Why it's so frustrating that the pain associated with our menstrual cycle is is largely ignored, let's face it. And whether you should really expect or put up with that kind of pain. Plus, we discussed the contraceptive pill, which is dispensed as pretty much something of a cure-all to women who feel quote-unquote out of balance. And also the ways in which you can realistically hack your cycle. And I'm not really a big fan of hacks, but you really want to listen to what Aviva has to say because she's got some very, very handy tips. And listeners, I wanted to have this conversation because I know this is information that a lot of you are after. And I also think it's the kind of insight that we can't hear enough. And if you're a woman listening to this, I really hope that you get something useful. And if you're a guy listening to this, I hope it helps you understand the women in your life better. And I'm delighted to let you know that Aviva said yes, and she was so generous with her expertise. And she talks about all of this, everything that I've just talked about. She talks about all of this and more. So clearly, I should just get to the conversation because this is really important stuff. Knowing ourselves really is the key to feeling good. And as Aviva says in the show, it's important for women to ask themselves, quote, what does it, what does it mean to want? What does it mean to need? And what does it mean to be truly aligned with knowing and trusting when we're not being treated the way we feel we ought to be? End quote. So here she is making her debut. It's the fabulous Dr. Aviva Rom on The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Aviva Rom. How are you? I am really, really well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm so delighted and excited that you could join me because I really wanted to talk to you about something that from everything that I've seen and read of yours, it, it feels as though this is something you're very passionate about too. And that is empowering women with the knowledge and the facts so that they don't have to accept less than and less than specifically in the realms of how they feel about their health, how they feel about basically what it means to be a woman. Yeah. As you were saying that it dawned on me that the words want and need our four letter words. <laughs> I think we've kind of internalized this. I mean, I know I have, I have to unpack it for myself too. What does it mean to want? What does it mean to need? And what does it mean to be truly aligned with knowing and trusting when we're not being treated the way we feel like we ought to be, or just mm -hmm. basically treated with respect. And we know when it's happening, but then we sublimate all of that story with another story like, oh, they're just, you know, they're just the doctor's tired. The nurse practitioners had a bad day. Oh, I'm just reading too much into it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think uh, something that I said, I'm going to kick off with something that I actually read this morning 
that I would love for you to weigh in on, but I also think is so emblematic of how women behave. And that is that I saw a post on social media, which listeners, we let's doesn't mean that it's necessarily 100% fact, but that the pain that a woman and other people with ovaries can experience uh, during their cycle, particularly period pains, cramps, can be as intense and painful as the pain associated with a heart attack. And yet yes. we go to work, we power through, we're not afforded the same compassion that somebody would be afforded if they were going into cardiac arrest in that kind of pain. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I've never had, I've been very fortunate to have um, relatively not painful periods. And I've certainly never had a heart attack and hope to never experience that pain. But certainly um, what's really interesting is taking it a step even further, Emma, is that even women who are having heart attacks are dismissed for their pain. Mm. So we know that at least here in the US, and I would imagine this is in other places as well, maybe a little less dramatic, but here in the US, a woman going in for chest pain or symptoms related to cardiac arrest is more likely to be dismissed as having stress or anxiety and more likely to be treated with an anti-anxiety medication and not get a cardiac workup than a man. So we are more likely to actually be sent home from the emergency department in cardiac arrest or be diminished for what we're experiencing and end up with a fatal heart attack than our male counterparts. So the fact that period pain is dismissed, the fact that endometriosis is missed on average in the US and the UK for seven to nine years, respectively, in the opposite US, seven, nine years, UK, seven years. And that I know most GPs in the UK don't even recognize endometriosis. 70% in one survey a few years back said, even if they saw a woman with endometriosis, they wouldn't even know what to offer her. Mm. Um, but the fact that that is dismissed is abysmal. And then we compare it to heart attack pain and know that that's dismissed. The whole thing is a little bit horrifying, really. Mm. So again, it just comes back to this point that women, there's almost an expectation that women have to develop the coping skills to put up with levels of pain that are unacceptable and are not right. afforded the do. compassion. I mean, we do put up with those, which is why so often women dismiss their own symptoms of something like cardiac arrest or why, you know, just to give you one example, I had a woman who was in my practice recently and she said that she, until she was around 24, had the periods from hell and had no idea that that wasn't normal because her mother had the periods from hell. So she just expected that painful periods were how it is. And it wasn't until she started learning more, becoming a little bit more body literate that she discovered that she actually had significant endometriosis, which her mom probably did too. You know, we're taught, I mean, let's just go all the way back to like biblical times, right? Like, or at least the Bible, no disrespect to anyone's religious you know, beliefs, but even in the Bible, it's sad. It's like, because we're women, we're supposed to suffer. So on a cultural level, on a religious level, on a medical level, you go to the doctor and on average, you're going to be told, oh, that's just normal. It's normal to have period pain. It's normal to feel miserable. Just feel like crap before your period, even if it's not pain, like PMS, it's all normal. And then you add to that the kind of trope or like the stereotype of the complaining woman. And none of us want to be that. So we don't express when we're struggling, or maybe we don't want to be that woman who, you know, somehow it's like not feminist to say, I need a day off because I'm premenstrual or whatever. So we, sh we can muscle through our power through all these different internal stories rather than just saying, I'm having pain. This isn't right. I need help. And I have written for magazines for lots of, for, for many years, and there will always be on the women's titles that are more health focused there will always be something about how to balance your hormones or how to do this and I think as I've spoken to more hormone doctors and more doctors in general on the podcast understanding that actually 
the hormones aren't supposed to be balanced. They're not supposed to be like an abacus where everything levels out. The whole point is that during the cycle, they are in constant flux. But what I think we've internalized is that we have to stay steady despite all of those fluctuations, even when they will be affecting how we feel, our mood and all of the other things that we know to be true. Yeah, I think what we... I think what women mean when we say my hormones are not balanced, I think it's almost like a euphemism for, I feel hijacked by what's going on in my body or my emotions. And so we talk about hormone imbalance and we talk about bringing our hormones back into balance. I think what we really mean is we're trying to feel well in our entire being again. And we're trying to not be whipped around by what's going on with these monthly cycles or cycles that happen at different phases of our life, whether that's pregnancy or postpartum or menstrually or menopausally. So I I completely agree. And it was really challenging writing this book on hormones and staying away from the term hormone balance when I know that that's what people expect to hear. And, you know, it's funny, I love that image of an abacus because really with an abacus, what are we doing? We're moving the, those little discs around all the time. And that's kind of what is happening with our hormones. Sometimes they're over here and sometimes they're over there. And sometimes there's more on this side. And sometimes there's more on that side. And sometimes they feel like they're in the middle. So I think if we can start to understand kind of what the language and the flavor of our hormones is, what to expect, which is that we shouldn't actually in my, I don't love to use the word should, I try not to should on myself and other people, but I don't feel like we should feel miserable because we have hormones but we will notice changes. And so noticing those changes, but being taken out of the game because of those changes are two different things. And how can we understand what those changes are, work with them, and especially work with them in a culture that's completely up against, like totally up against our natural flow Mm -hmm. and cycles. Um, and, and, you know, and still live in the world. It's, it's the kind of ever growing challenge that or ever existing challenge that we have. And you mentioned the book, so hormone intelligence. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious, um, I, from everyone I've spoken to who's written a book, there is a very strong feeling that is that seed that comes up, which is the idea. And I wonder with that book, what was the need that you, what was the message that you really wanted women to understand from you? Yeah. I th- the deepest message from me in that book is that even if you are struggling with your hormones, if you're struggling with things going on in your body, it is not your fault. You're not broken. There's not something wrong with you, but that our hormones are incredibly exquisitely sensitive to the environment that we're in. So how can we look at the total constellation of all the things that make up women's ecosystems globally, but then also our individual ecosystems and look to where those are causing disruptions in our hormones. That to me is the basis of the entire book. It's so interesting that you talk about how intricate and uh, sensitive our hormones are actually, because I learned that, I mean, we've all been in lockdown. And one of the first things I did out of lockdown was to spend four days at a conference with women and my cycle completely changed. Mm-hmm. And it was such a, a sign of, gosh, you, you know, you really, there, there's so much that can impact it. I didn't even think being around a group of women at a conference for four days would have any impact other, <laughs> on me other than I would lose my voice and feel quite tired by the end of it. But the it's fact funny, that my, my oldest, <laughs> my oldest daughter said something similar. She works in, um, she works in a skincare, organic skincare company, which is primarily women. And there were primarily women at the office. And she said, when they went on to lockdown, a lot of the women started noticing changes in their cycles. And a lot of people were saying, oh, it's COVID, it's vaccine, it's this, it's that, it's the other. And she said, I wonder if it's just partly just not being around other women as much. And I think there's something really powerful about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, you know, it's interesting. It's the studies that look at you know, women cycling together, there are just a limited number of studies. And most of them show that statistically we don't necessarily cycle together, but we do know is that being around each other and being in regular connection and communication 
increases our oxytocin, which makes us feel better, but it also increases our progesterone and something that increases your progesterone means that it's helping you ovulate. You can't have progesterone if you don't ovulate. So there's something going on there. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that you can try and pay a huge amount of attention to your body. And I think in the last few years, I think women have felt really quite empowered and we talk about things like the menopause a lot. We talk about cycles and menstruation and hormones much more openly than we did 10 years yeah. ago. And yet it, there's still so much more at play. And one of the things that really blew my mind was the fact that actually uh, puberty and those hormone changes are presenting much earlier than they ever have done. Yeah. You know, I wrote an article when I first started blogging, you know, eight, 10 years ago about puberty happening earlier in, um, in our girls. And I thought, you know what, probably nobody's interested in this article, but me, but I'm going to write it. And perennially, whenever I do a social media post on this topic, when I, you know, kind of bring the blog front and center again, it just gets this avalanche of likes and thank yous and emails to my inbox of moms, particularly who are noticing these early breast development changes, early pubic hair, armpit hair, um, earlier periods in their daughters. And it's really interesting because we know that, I mean, hands down, we know that there are environmental exposures that we're getting that are leading to this, both probably when we're pregnant with our daughters, but also as our daughters are growing. And then we also know that there is implicit racism that adds to this problem because we know it's the, it's much worse for Latina girls than it is for white girls. And then even much worse for black girls than it is for Latina girls. Um, and this is due to increasing risk of environmental exposure, depending on what environment you're in coupled with lack of exercise, depending on what kind of community you live in and the safety and access to exercise or a gym or equipment to exercise with, or classes that you can go to, um, and lack of access to, um, the quality foods and information that help prevent those early changes. So it's pretty complicated, complicated, but a really significant problem. I'm thinking back now to the eighties or maybe it would be, mm -hmm. yeah, it'd be the early nineties when I was beginning to become aware and I sent off for my starter pack for when I eventually started my periods. And I kind of had to learn that on the side, there were little leaflets and there were diagrams and what have you. I'm sure everyone can immediately come to the image of how to insert a tampon and all of those sorts of things. Oh my gosh, my cousin, I mean, I'm older than you are. So I, I got my first period when I was 12. So that was 1978. And I have a cousin who is eight years older than I am. And, you know, when I told her I got my first period, she's like, I'll teach you how to put a tampon and come out in the bathroom. And in retrospect, I think it's so cool that she offered me, but at the moment I was just horrified. I was like, mm. uh, no, thank you. That's okay. It just seemed a little too personal and private, but yeah, we don't get that information. I mean, most women don't even know what's going on down there. They have no idea what parts, what their bits are. They, they don't know what a clitoris is. They don't know that there are three holes down there, you know, the urethra and vaginal opening and anus. They just have no idea. Um, so putting a tampon in or a cervical cap or a menstrual cup just seems so out there for so many people. Yeah. If you don't actually understand the anatomy and yeah. I mean, how many things have I seen recently about people saying, can we just be clear that that is not a vulva? This is a vulva and this is a vagina. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's one of my little, <laughs> um, not pet peeves. Cause I, I get it why people are, you know, they just don't know, but when I see a health professional or, you know, wellness person saying something like that, I'm just like, oh my gosh, let's get the terms right folks. So what and then we... there's the terms. Let's just say like vagina yeah. means a sheath for a sword. So we got to find better language too. I think it'll make <laughs> us all happier and get the words right. If we have better, better words. We, yeah, you're absolutely right. So seeing as this is starting a lot earlier and even we can recall that the information wasn't necessarily there for us. And even though it yeah. is changing positively, what would, if someone's listening to this and they have a young daughter, what would be the information that you would like to share with them to make the next generation's experience of entering this phase of their life um, easier and less bamboozling? 
I love that word. Um, bamboozling. That's great. <laughs> I would say just be uh, open and not ashamed, transparent, have menstruation be part of the normal conversation. And at the same time, be respectful of where you're, and not just for your daughters, but your sons too. Um, you know, have the word period, moon time, whatever you call it, have just be, be part of the normal conversation and how you're feeling. You know, mom wants to take a little break right now because I just started my period and it's just a day for self-care. I mean, what a message to give to not only our daughters, but our sons and our children's gender fluidity. So who knows what they're going to be, but giving that information. And at the same time, you know, you don't have to necessarily invite them in the bathroom while you're changing your tampon, because that might be over the top, right? For we need to know each of our children and meet them where they are. For most kids, that would probably not what they want. Mm. And have books around, listen to podcasts together, um, have the conversations and have the conversations younger so that it's just normalized. I think everything we can do to normalize menstruation is so important. There's a word that I've heard you use before, me search, which mm -hmm. is, well, explain to the listeners what, what that is and how that is actually incredibly empowering. Yeah. I don't remember where I first <laughs> heard that term. I had a mentor um, many, many years ago. She's passed now, but she used to say, instead of um, that you were doing interviews, you were doing interviews. And so I don't know if she said me search, but somewhere along the line, this idea that rather than always just looking outside of ourselves for information research, mm -hmm. we're actually gathering information internally. So a great way to do that. And this is a wonderful thing to give to your daughter and do together is just having a menstrual cycle chart and charting when you get your period charting, not just what your physical changes are throughout your menstrual cycle. So throughout that whole month or however long you're Time is from when your first, when your period starts to the day before the next one starts. But how are you feeling? For example, this particular mentor, she used to say, pay attention to what clothes you're wearing at different times of your cycle. And I used to notice that I was, I would wear much more sexy clothing. And this is in the, I'm talking the early eighties. I was wearing much more, you know, like sexy clothing. And then premenstrually, I find myself pulling out this old red sweater that my grandmother gave me only to start my period the next day. I was just like, it was month after month. And I started noting this. I was talking with um, someone I interviewed for my book who um, is Sarah Hill. She is an incredible menstrual health researcher. And uh, she said, that was really um, ahead of the game for your mentor to be aware of that and suggesting that you pay attention to that because now the research that's being done in the past five to eight years on menstrual cycle awareness is showing Hmm, believe it or not, when we're around ovulation, mid-cycle, we tend to dress sexier because it's our biology's way of, you know, creating a sexual relationship that creates a baby. Even mm -hmm. though that we're, we're not driven by our biology, we don't have to do that. But at a more primitive, innate level, that is why those menstrual cycles are there. So all of those kinds of things, what foods do you crave and what do you gravitate toward? Maybe you love doing CrossFit or some kind of intense training in the first half of your menstrual cycle or around ovulation. And then premenstrual, you're just like, Ugh, I just really want to do some restorative yoga. So learning to pay attention to that. And that's what I call me search. Yeah, because I think that we are conditioned to just push through. So yeah. I would do the exact same workout every day. Uh, and, and if I woke up tired one day and it was linked to my cycle, I wouldn't care. It'd be like, well, I still have to achieve the same level. I, it's only in my late thirties, early forties, I cut, kind of cut myself some slack and listened to that and thought, nice. actually I'm, I'm like laying down fat because if I, if I was pregnant, then my body would want to nourish whatever I was growing. And you can when you begin to understand like that, you can think, actually, yeah, I don't I need to that. be doing that today. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to emphasize that it's not that we can't, right? I mean, you look at Kieran Gandhi, she ran the, the London marathon in her joggers, no menstrual pad or tampons. And we saw for all, for all the world wonderfully that she was free bleeding and mm -hmm. running a marathon. So if that's what you're inspired to do, great. It, you know, there's no data and all the data is to the contrary 
our cognitive function does not decline, our intellectual capacity, our test-taking capacity, none of that declines from an, an ability to do it level. I think what happens is we just don't want to as much. And that's the piece to really honor is how am I feeling right now? And that kind of comes back to, you know, what we started out with is allowing ourselves to not accept less is really tuning back into, well, what do we want? What do we need? And really the only way to know that is to listen, is to do that me search and start to pay attention to how do I really feel in my body? How do I really feel on all levels? If somebody asks me to do something today and I really don't want to, and it's over the top and it's not something that I need to do, it's kind of peripheral to my focus and my goals. And I want to say no, because that's what's best for me. How do I feel between saying that feeling of knowing that really what I need to do is take care of myself and say no. And that gap between what I say and how often do we say yes when we need to say no, or how often mm -hmm. do we say no to something when we want to say yes. And I think that really is about listening to each of us. And I think it's different for each of us, but where we feel that mm. knowing. It's, um, the accepting less and the feeling that you have to push through, it's almost as if you're kind of bargaining with failure or that's how it's felt before where you wake totally. up, maybe you don't feel that great, but you still want to hit the same standard or feel that you can't afford yourself. You're not listening to yourself, so you can't afford yourself a day off. And so you push through and then a cycle happens, a chain reaction will happen where maybe you can't do as much as you did, whether it's physical activity or whatever it might be. And so then you feel down on yourself and it begins this negative spiral that maybe yeah. feeds into what's going on internally too. We are not a culture in, in the Western world at all that honors the need for rest, restoring and recuperating. And I was in Italy some years ago, I was up um, at a, I have a friend who has a villa and we were at his villa for a week um, in the, on the Amalfi coast, kind of in a little tiny town where actually cars couldn't go past this certain part of the road. So once you got to the town, you had to walk everywhere. And we were out to lunch one day at the top of the hill. And there was a couple sitting at this shared table. And they asked the woman who owned the restaurant, who was also you know, taking food orders and coming around. She's like, they said, when does it was, so it was lunchtime. She said, they said, oh, we need to exchange some money. When does the bank, uh, what time, what are the bank hours? And she said, well, the bank um, closes from 11 to one for lunch. And then they open from one to three and then they close for the day. <laughs> and it was really all about this rest period. And, you know, I've spent time in, Latin American countries in that it's that same, like we don't just push and push and push and we value different things in different cultures, right? We value in Western world, we value productivity and wringing as much out of people as we can. And we've all internalized that, that that's what, that's what success is. That's what discipline is. And that anything that is like self-care rest, taking time off, saying no to something, it's just somehow we're not disciplined or we're not motivated or we're not, we don't have the right goals. It's just so not true. And what's really interesting, Emma, is that every single study that's coming out right now, whether it's studies on the four day work week or for healthcare providers, taking time off, not getting burnt out. We are actually more productive. We're happier. We tend to stay at our jobs longer if we work for a company. Um, and we make much fewer mistakes. And at the end of the day, we feel so much better when we do allow ourselves some downtime. I just, and I'll tell you, I just took a colossal, like I took a colossal moment of walking my talk because I had the most intense 18 month of work, 18 months of work last year. <clears throat> I mean, it was like equivalent to being in medical residency wow. <clears throat> with the last book I did. And I got to a point where I was like, I need to hit full stop. And I did. And I mean, I'm able to, cause I work for myself and I set it up so that I could, so I took two months of almost full stop. Yeah. And it was incredible. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like, it wasn't easy. I had to make choices. I mean, I had to make choices. I had to trust that it was okay to not do as much social media 
and that it wasn't going to all fall apart, that it was okay to not be promoting something. Like it was okay to make a little less right then and kind of trim back a little bit to be able to take that time. And it was just incredible. Highly recommended. (laughs) I didn't think I would reference the film Showgirls during our conversation of Eva, but I will, because I think it speaks to the line in that film, which is there's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs after you. And I'll They'll push you and they'll take your spot. And I think that that does lead to this feeling of, I can't take my foot off the gas because if I do, I won't be able to return to things as I left them. As that is such, such a great line and such a great visual too. And I think that for me, I've had to do a lot of work from my own upbringing and maybe just being a woman of my age also um, around scarcity and FOMO and competition. And I think anyone who's in the social media age feels those things too. And isn't that also just based on this idea that as women, we're in constant competition with each other and that there isn't enough to go around. And neither one of those is actually true. And I've really deeply, um, seen that and come to believe that more and more. And when we can allow ourselves to believe that, truly believe that, um, it can transform everything. Mm. Um, I'm really keen to ask you, we sort of touched on it a little bit, but about the cycle and the things that may happen and things that uh, we may notice. And if someone's listening to this, maybe we can literally go through uh, the average life uh, length of a cycle, for example, because I know you said before, um, that if you want to start a regime, we may be conditioned to start on a Monday or on the first, but actually it might be better to start bang in the middle of your cycle, or you might find that, uh, you're more likely to go on a shopping spree and max out the credit cards at certain times of the month. So starting with day one. Yes. So day, day one, is defined as the first day of the menstrual cycle, which is kind of odd because in some ways it seems like it should be the last day, right? You're shedding that blood and then starting over. So it feels like it should be the last day. And of course, men defined all these (laughs) definitions. So, but technically day one is the first day of your menstrual cycle. And on average, internationally, women have 29.5 day menstrual cycles, but a healthy menstrual cycle can be anywhere from 26 to 34 days. So we have, even in the wellness world, I think kind of created this, oh, you know, I'm supposed to have a 28 day cycle cycle with the moon, um, you know, cycle at the full moon, ovulate at the new moon or whichever way, you know, that person is saying it and it's way more diverse than that. And within that menstrual cycle. So let's pretend there's a 29.5 day cycle on average, women typically ovulate about 14 days before we menstruate. So that's pretty fixed, but throughout the cycle, we have fluctuations in primarily three hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And each of those hormones has their own flavor, if you will, or their own personality. So estrogen is very voluptuous. Estrogen makes our breasts feel fuller. It's what defines the classic Willendorf, you know, Venus body shape of hips and butts. And, um, it really makes us juicy. I mean, literally it creates more fluffy, puffy vaginal tissue and engorgement. Um, and progesterone is kind of an emotionally stabilizing, calming hormone. And it also literally stabilizes the uterine lining. So estrogen makes that uterine lining grow thick so that if there is conception and implantation, that thick lining nourishes that growing um, embryonic tissue. And then progesterone makes that tissue a little bit more adherent to the uterine wall. And then testosterone gives us a lot of vigor and drive and motivation. And so as we are approaching. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. 
We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Our periods, our estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone are at their lowest. So right when we start menstruating, that's when they're the lowest and premenstrually they're already declining. So that's why premenstrually our moods often lower our, uh, our energy is lower. Our drive is often lower. Like if you ask someone the day before their period, if they feel like starting to write a book, I mean, unless they get a creative surge, which some women really do get that like deep inner, maybe if they're writing a book about like the creative deep feminine for sure, but probably not an economics book. They're going to look at you like, yeah, not today, but like <laughs> talk to me in two weeks. But then right when you're right when you start your, your menstrual flow, those hormones start to go back up. And so you're getting this increase in estrogen, this increase in testosterone, progesterone doesn't come on board until mid cycle. So you get this increase in estrogen, this increase in testosterone, everything is getting really juicy and full. And then that testosterone starts to peak and you have a lot of creative energy and that peaks for the first big peak around ovulation. It starts before and then around ovulation. And then once we ovulate, progesterone comes on. So right in that mid cycle, we've got this like beautiful, we're bathed in this beautiful cascade of hormones that make us feel juicy and sexy and creative and calm and motivated. And interestingly, our inflammation is at the lowest and our ability to muscle repair is at the highest. So toward what you were saying, mid cycle is a great time to start a new, like if that's when you want to like first get on, you know, some kind of like more intense exercise practice, that's a great time to do it. Interestingly, also peri ovulation around that time of ovulation, our appetite is lower. And so if you're wanting to do something, you know, lightening up what you're eating for a minute. So you're just kind of like doing a little bit of like I don't know. I don't, I don't like to use the word cleanse because I don't like to think of us as not clean, but if you want to do like a little mm-hmm. fasting, something, something, or just a little lighter eating, you know, cleaning out the spring, cleaning out the closet for spring in your diet. Um, that's an optimal time to do it. Whereas premenstrually when you're kind of wanting the carbs and the chocolate, it's almost like you're setting yourself up for failure. And there are reasons that we want those carbs premenstrually. Interestingly, um, serotonin is the hormone that makes us feel good. It's one of the hormones that makes us, or neurotransmitters, I should say, it's a brain chemical that makes us feel good. When estrogen goes down, estrogen is one of the building blocks of serotonin. So as our estrogen goes down, our serotonin goes down. What foods help keep our serotonin up? Healthy carbs. So chocolate also does that. So eating healthy carbs and some chocolate premenstrually is great. And if you know that, that's the me search. If you know that, you can do it preventatively. Or if you know that you typically just don't feel like going for that run or going to the gym or whatever it is you do for movement, do restorative yoga for a few days, you know, leading up to your moon time. If you do struggle with motivation, for example, um, it could be that your testosterone is a little bit low. If you um, mid cycle, don't feel your, your best. It may be that some of the hormone shifts that you're experiencing are giving you messages through how you feel. So there's a lot that we can learn if we understand the sort of personalities of the hormones and how they show up when they're either a little high or a little low, that's them talking to us. Very, very cool stuff. And keeping, again, keeping a menstrual cycle journal is one of the best ways to just start to pay attention to yourself. It's phenomenal information. I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who think, they maybe have got the short end of the stick that Mm -hmm. their hormones affect them more than other people. And they seem to have higher highs or lower lows. That's absolutely true. So many women do. And is there something, is that just your, your, are those just your factory settings or is there something that you can do with those? Can you influence those by making lifestyle changes or changing your diet. I know that you've talked about the link between the microbiome and Mm -hmm. the way that our hormones function. So if someone is listening to this and they think, I do feel as though I'm on a roller coaster every month, are there changes they can make? So yes. And yes, for some women, 
those are our factory settings. If your mom and your sister and your grandmother all had hypothyroidism, you doesn't mean you're going to have hypothyroidism. You don't have to just inherit all that. You don't have to have all the traits that you inherit become manifest, but you are more at risk. If your mom has endometriosis or your sister has endometriosis, there's a much greater chance that you will because, because of those factory settings, inherent inflammatory changes that may be preset genetically, either in the family lineage, or maybe something happened during your mom's pregnancy. She had gestational diabetes, of course, no fault of hers either. Um, that happened. Now you inherited more inflammatory changes. Maybe her gestational diabetes affected your insulin settings. And now you have PCOS polycystic ovary syndrome, which is why I think it's so important for us not to blame ourselves. I also think it's really important to recognize that we have to be very careful when we hear people in the wellness space, whether it's an MD, a health coach, a nutritionist, celebrity, anybody say, I've cured this and you can too, if you just do what I say, because they may have had a milder case. They may have had a different underlying reason that something happened for them. We're all different. And so it's really important. I don't want anyone to feel like a failure if they need the medication because they tried everything and it just didn't get them where they needed to go. or the diet alone just didn't do it. But that said, there are a lot of things that we can do. So just for example, we know that women who have higher levels of inflammation are much more likely to have worse period pain or period pain in general. Women who have higher levels of estrogen, which could be due to environmental chemical exposures, dietary factors, gut microbiome factors may have higher estrogen as a result. And because of that may experience heavy periods or more breast tenderness. We know that women who eat um, more red meat rather than more fish and more vegetables and fruits are more likely to have endometriosis and more likely to have worse endometriosis symptoms. And that by making some of those changes, we can reduce the severity or the intensity of endometriosis pain, for example. So there's a lot that can be done. Um, in my practice, I look at stress. I look at diet. I look at gut. I look at sleep patterns. I look at environmental exposures and also our own innate detoxification systems. And I also look at the stories and beliefs of the culture that we live in and our own body beliefs that we have from our culture or that we may have inherited through expectations from our, our moms or grandmothers. It, it's so, it's so complex, but actually, as you're saying, uh, there are so many little clues along the way. It is about maybe keeping that diary and understanding, doing a bit of questioning to your relatives maybe, and you can yeah. begin to piece things together that could be really helpful. And you, you referenced it earlier, sometimes People go to the doctors and they don't feel as though they're heard. And as much information as you can take and say, I'm presenting you with this and I would like to feel better than I do. Please, can we put, please, can you help me? I love that. It's so, it's so humble and vulnerable. Like how could somebody say no to that? Right. <laughs> and um, it's, it's so much what we want to receive. Unfortunately, most Western physicians aren't trained in the nuances of nutrition or what we might be able to do with the microbiome, even things just as simple as adding more fiber or diversifying our diets just to help that microbiome along, or um, they're not familiar with the impact of stress or circadian rhythm disruption, you know, sleep problems on women's hormonal cycles, menstrual cycles. So often we need to get the information from our doctors that we can get from them and then piece together either through our own research combined with the me search or other practitioners who may offer some of those insights that fill in the gaps of what conventional physicians don't no, because we're not taught. We're not taught. I mean, I, I spent seven years in medical training and that top 
universities and medical institutions. And there were two classes on nutrition in seven years, one that I taught and one 50 minute talk that was given by a physician who happened to be at that university, who was also a health celebrity. And he spent the first 20 minutes of a 50 minute class reading a poem. And it's just like, that's all the nutrition that 100 doctors in that four-year span of medical training got. And then three years of residency, nothing, let alone anything about, you know, we're so taught to be dismissive about botanicals and supplements that we don't even, as physicians, we're not trained in which ones do have evidence for efficacy. Like, you know, there are a couple of studies looking at calcium and vitamin D combination that really can help reduce period pain or a botanical called chasteberry or vitex, which really can help. And, you know, there's good data showing that it can help with PMS. So why not try it, especially before we try pharmaceuticals, which often can be helpful, but can often come with more significant unintended consequences, AKA side effects. Mm -hmm. This touches on something that I'm really glad we actually navigated near because it's a difficult one actually, because Mm -hmm. uh, longtime listeners will know I'm pretty uh, stringent about getting experts on who are science-backed, evidence-based. And what I've definitely noticed in this area when it comes to women's health is that the wellness space can sometimes pick up people who feel lost and abandoned by medicine, conventional medicine, and they end up buying into things that don't have any evidence behind them, but they do give the individual a sense of empowerment, I guess, or maybe even they feel a little bit better because at least they're in control in some way. But I worry for women who are targeted at a time when they are vulnerable and are willing to spend the money on whatever solution. And um, I really want to hand it over to you because I'm guessing that you must see that a lot too. I struggle with that too. You know, I was talking to one of my dearest, longest term physician colleagues recently, and I said, I'm probably spending a third of every medical appointment now explaining to my patient why that something, something that they read about on the internet really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And it's not that to me, it's not a lack of evidence because there are a lot of things that are never going to be studied. So there's just not, you know, there's not a lot of incentive for the um, big research institutions to research certain herbs that people can grow in their backyard. Most research and development is happening because at the end of the day, a device or a pharmaceutical can be created that will make the research institution, often a pharmaceutical company or a university medical school, million, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic or jaded way. That's just the actual reality. So they're not going to necessarily go study Vitex when, or Chaseberry when that can be grown and made by an herbal company anywhere, right? Unless they can find a specific formulation that is patentable and unique and sellable. So, you know, there's the challenge to say, okay, well, What level of evidence do we need? And also keep in mind that it's not just the wellness um, industry or movement that is targeting women. Pharmaceutical companies also target women. So even pharmaceuticals that are intended for men will often target women because women are more likely to get their boyfriend or their male partner or their father into the doctor's office than the man will himself. So we're targets left and right. So, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, there's so much desperation that women will try pharmaceuticals that are not well evidence-based for women, um, and not well researched for women at doses that don't necessarily correlate with our unique physiology. And we will fall prey to all kinds of testing and diagnoses and supplements and protocols in the wellness world. So for me, I think my, I see my role increasingly in this space as trying to fill that gap and saying, okay, here's when this is needed. Here's when that's reasonable and okay. It's when there's evidence against something or when somebody is misrepresenting the level of evidence that I think is really complicated 
or when somebody is going down the natural road or that wellness road based on misrepresented evidence, instead of using a pharmaceutical or a surgery when they really actually need it, um, that it can become quite dangerous. So I couldn't agree more. It's really tricky. Um, you know, for me, a big piece of what I'm doing right now is just trying to provide that, that voice, increase my own team's research capacity so we can be keeping up with the noise on both sides. And I think, you know, for us as women too, even when we feel totally lost and confused and desperate to not surrender our power, but to really ask the questions, really think through, really look at where's the information coming from. You know, there are so many companies now, for example, supplement companies that boast research about their product. But then when you look, the company owner is the one doing the research and the research isn't being published in real journals. They're like journals that anyone can publish in. So it's hard though, right? Because then you don't feel well. And now you have to also be in charge of your own care. And that's exhausting. So there's not one easy answer, but yes, seeing what the best evidence is, finding those few people that you can really trust, reading between the lines, looking at who's profiting from what you're purchasing, all big, important things to do. One of the other areas that I talk about a lot is beauty, because I started out my journalism career as a beauty editor. And in a similar parallel, or in a parallel, uh, one of the things that's happened in beauty is this idea that chemicals are bad, toxic beauty, you've got to go for clean beauty. And I personally don't subscribe to that particular view because I've seen too much marketing that uh, it, it scares people into thinking that what they're currently using might be harmful and might give them a horrible thing. And so don't worry, we've got something that's clean and it's misinformation. And again, we're going to use that word again, it's bamboozling. And it really upsets me because it's not accurate and it confuses things and it makes jobs harder for dermatologists and uh, formulating chemists to actually do their jobs. Because when you actually speak to the average woman, they have heard something scary and we all do it. We all do it. We hear something scary. We hear, we hear something might cause cancer. And what's the first thing you do instinctively? You stop using it. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's, it's very similar. I agree with you. I do want us to be thoughtful about the phthalates and um, essentially like anything that is plastic based that ends up in a product. Mm -hmm. So phthalates are a big one. They're in fragrances, they're softeners. Um, and we do know that they can be endocrine disruptors. I don't think that cancer is the likely result of most of those products. I think the more likely result is hormone disruption, which at the extreme perhaps could become a, a source of cancer, but it's more like the day-to-day -day bits of endocrine disruption. But when you actually look under the hood at a lot of companies that say that say they're clean, if you will, with I'm doing this with air quotes. If, if you're listening and can't see me, um, they're not always. There's a lot of greenwashing, so mm. you could end up paying two times as much for something that really isn't appreciably healthier for you. So the way I look at it is, anything that you're putting on large swaths of your body, your body lotion, your soap your shampoo, your um, moisturizer, um, and your lipstick, because we eat a lot of lipstick off of our lips. Mm -hmm. Anything that's going on large swaths of your body, have it be as ecologically and personally hormone-friendly as possible. I don't think that your mascara is going to <laughs> be a big risk of your, you know, or your eyebrow stuff is going to be as a huge risk. We're not applying that to large areas of our body. And then I'm careful with fragrances, anything that has fragrance, because we do know that fragrances, even just inhaling them over time can act as endocrine disruptors. So I'm cautious, but I agree. I think that we can go a little over the top. 
I mean, from an environmental perspective, you know, less is more. Um, and anything that's more ecologically friendly is phenomenal. So better packaging, fewer products, all of that I'm hundred percent for. Because it is that parallel, isn't it? In beauty, it might be clean beauty, but in well, in women's health, it could be, don't have this uh, pill, for example, um, the contraceptive pill. Don't take that, use this instead, because that has implications. And mm-hmm. I will be very honest with you. I was put on the pill age 17 because I had undiagnosed polycystic ovary syndrome from the age of 11. At mm-hmm. 17, someone said, oh, we can sort out your facial hair and your acne and your alopecia and your weight gain and your your body hair. All you need to do is take this. I blindly took it for 20 years until there was cancer in the family. And I thought, oh, artificial hormones, maybe I should just stop. And so it, it is, it's those knee jerk reactions. But I was very, very happy to take that for a while. And it did make me yeah. feel much better. Yeah. And I have patients who sometimes have PCOS with cystic acne and a low progesterone producing, or sorry, low uh, testosterone producing birth control pill can make all the difference between whether they show up for job interviews or whether they go out on dates or go out with their friends. Um, Severe, even moderate cystic acne is a huge cause of depression, anxiety, social isolation, all of which can affect our social lives, our careers and our well-being. So I think we do have to really look at the whole picture. And I think we have to be incredibly cautious about the dramatic claims against and for things in the wellness world. And again, look at who's making the claim and are they selling something behind it? And it doesn't mean that they're, you know, it may be they're selling something that you want, need, and can't get anywhere else. But I, I think these extreme claims, you know, like one of the claims going around for a while, a few years ago that a magazine interviewed me about whether it was true was that um, there was a person who wrote a book about the pill. And one of her things was that if you take the pill at any time in your life and you get pregnant later on, even if it's been years off the pill, and you have a boy, that boy is more likely to have cancer. And this was based on one study that linked women who had taken the pill with men who in their older years develop prostate cancer. Now, first of all, for anyone who's old enough to really be in an, an older man being studied with prostate cancer, their mom would have had to take in the taken the pill when the pill was high dose estrogen pill, which is not what most people take anymore. And it was such a soft correlation. So to make this jump and, and actually by the time men are old enough, most men, if you were to do a prostate biopsy, you would find prostate cancer. So, you know, not necessarily in any life threatening, or it's just, it's like, if you look at people who are old enough, you know, anybody over 85, if you were to evaluate them would have some Alzheimer's changes or dementia changes in their brain. It's just a fact of getting older to some extent. And, um, you know, so it was like such clickbait and such Mm. scare tactics. Um, and I think it limits women from making the best choices for ourselves that I also think it creates a lot of shame. And we've kind of swung the pendulum where I think women are almost a little embarrassed to say, uh, yeah, I eat red meat and every now and then I, I have some junk food and I do take the pill because it's now sort of almost taboo to admit that you do the regular stuff. Yeah. And actually just, I know that our time together is drawing to a close, but just as we are talking about the pill, I think I've read, I think it might have been you that wrote it. 60% of women on birth control are not on it for contraception. They are on it for the issues that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, which is to make them feel good. Yes. And, you know, I've, I'm very much, um, someone who's not opposed to the pill at all. I mean, the pill has been able to provide us with an enormous amount of economic and social liberation around our reproductive control over our reproductive health and capacities. Um, my issue with the fact that at least 60% of women are on the pill for non-contraceptive reasons is that so many young women are being told that the pill is the only answer and they're not being told about the potential side effects. For example, depression is a very well 
established side effect of taking the pill to the point that a substantial number of young women who are put on the pill, teenagers and early twenties who are put on the pill, who have no history of depression, end up needing an antidepressant just because of the side effects of the pill. Doesn't mean you don't make that choice, right? If you're struggling with horrible cystic acne and you know, that's causing you depression or going on the pill is causing you depression, but you need it for your cystic acne. We make choices, but not informing people about the side effects and not giving options and also not checking in, right? Okay. Well, you've been on the pill since you were 13 and now you're 17. Do you still need it? You've been on the pill since you were 13 and now you're 27. Do you still need it? We're not doing that check-in. We just kind of like put women on the pill and say, you know, when they're 12 and say, call me when you're ready to go off it and have a baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Mm -hmm. So I think, and I hope what people take away from this conversation with you, because it's been so wonderful. Thank you. So generous is first of all, how you feel if it's not how you want to feel at any time during your cycle, it's not your fault. It's not something that is because you're bad or wrong. But also there are things that you can do to change it, to maybe improve it, but it's not an overnight or a quick fix. We're talking about doing the me search, doing the research, um, not falling for clickbait, looking at all areas of life to essentially get you to a place where you feel as good as you really should feel. Absolutely. It's a beautiful summary and not feeling like you have to either or it's not a natural approach or a pharmaceutical approach. Mm -hmm. I think anytime you can start with a more natural, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, more gentle approach, food, lifestyle. Great. Always start there if you can, Mm -hmm. but you also don't have to be miserable being stuck there. If it's not getting you the results, you can blend the choices that you have. And part of that liberation is being able to choose from all that's available to us. Now, I know that in this conversation, we've really focused on hormones and the cycle and what have you, but um, listeners, Aviva's Instagram uh, books, they they cover so much more. Like your Instagram especially is, is is a really incredible informative page that is, is full of, to be honest, I think it's, it is, it's not like any other feed I've seen. I've seen things on there that I've never seen elsewhere. Oh, wow. And... Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you do it intentionally. Like, uh, for example, there is there is a video of somebody giving birth. Mm-hmm. And y- you talk about the fact that we need to normalize the fact. We yeah. need to know what that looks like because many women will go through it. And actually, we shouldn't be frightened of it. And I think what you do on your feed is really demystify things that maybe we naturally shy away from, feel embarrassed about, or a little bit scared of. Thank you. I want to start posting more images of women who are aging without treatments. Not that I, again, it's like the pill. I mean, I fully support women who choose to do Botox, fillers, surgery. And I really understand why we feel we need to do that in the culture that we live in, right? Mm. Our appearance and ageism have a huge impact on us in so many ways, but like normalizing birth, I want the Emma Thompson's of the world, for example, with what does that really look like too? Because yeah. we don't know what it looks like. What is normal hair when everybody has hair weaves? What is normal aging when everyone's getting, not everyone literally, but so many women, even starting in their thirties are getting Botox and eye lifts and fillers and their chins chiseled and all of this wildness. What does it all look like? Well, rest assured listeners, the links to Aviva, her social media, her website, her books, will be in the show notes but this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for your time dr aviva rom thank you for this lovely time together thank you so much for listening to that episode of the emma gun show i do hope you enjoyed it i appreciate your time hugely if you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. 
If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Bye.